This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on on an ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle, such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices, and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part? Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Salim Teja. Salim is a partner at Radical Ventures. Radical Ventures is a venture capital firm investing in entrepreneurs applying deep technology to transform massive industries, with a primary focus on machine learning and artificial intelligence. In this episode, we discuss Salim's background as a founder. He gives me a great history lesson on AI in Canada, and we discuss where the AI space is going. Please enjoy my conversation with Salim Teja. I'd really like to start with kind of that first decade of your career, like you went to University of Western, um, you spent some time as a founder, some time as an investor, really, like, what kind of got you, you know, like, you coming out of Western, what, what did you really want to do coming out of university? Yeah, I, you know, I, while I was at business school, I did the HBA program at, at Ivy at Western, and uh, I just fell in love with the technology industry. And, and uh, if you, you know, I'm dating myself here, but this was sort of the mid nineties. Uh, the, the industry was still really, really early. 
Um, and, you know, I, I really felt like this was going to be an industry that we were really at the beginning stages of, that it was an, an industry where I wanted to build my career. Uh, and it was an industry that I thought had some really long sustaining power that if you could kind of get exposed to lots of interesting things, uh, you could, you could have a big impact. So as, uh, many of my colleagues from business school went into investment banking and consulting, I really wanted to, you know, back then move to the U S and take a shot at jumping into the tech sector. Back then there weren't a lot of opportunities yet in the technology sector in Canada. And so I needed to be a bit proactive to kind of find those opportunities. And through, you know, a number of uh, early experiences, I met two really great friends who had similar ambitions on wanting to be entrepreneurs. And, you know, the first big thing that I did early on in my career was uh, starting my own startup with, with my two colleagues uh, out in the Bay Area. In, uh, in 1998 uh, or 1999 uh, in the e-commerce space. And that was sort of my first glimpse of entrepreneurship and uh, building a company and, and, and getting that opportunity at such a young age coming right out of school, uh, you know, for me was, a, was an incredible opportunity, you know, to really get to experience, first of all, what it was like to have an idea, bring that idea to life, attract venture capital, uh, be able to build a product, ship a product, get it out to the market, uh, hire a team, uh, you know, become a, a leader uh, and having to make, you know, uh, important decisions, both sort of uh, around opportunities that were developing and you know, tough things that we were learning, managing a board, um, you know, doing all of that in the Bay Area, in Silicon Valley, where, you know, it was really a, a, a hyper connected type of environment, you know, for me, getting that whole experience early on was really, really, really formative to, you know, the way that I think about entrepreneurship, the way that I thought about my career. And uh, for me, it really helped chart the course in terms of what I wanted to do. And so, you know, I, I built that startup uh, for five, six years, we exited. Um, I then came back to Canada to kind of catch my breath, uh, with the goal of kind of going back and doing the next startup. Uh, but I got connected when I came back to, to Canada, to the VC community, um, and got the opportunity really early on to join a VC firm, a firm called Brightspark Ventures and, and to be a partner there and to help, uh, be on the other side of the table, making investments and working with entrepreneurs and, and trying to grow and develop an early stage uh, startup ecosystem here in Canada. And so for that next phase of my, my career, I, I got experience to what it would be like being an investor and uh, the, the challenges of, you know, finding great entrepreneurs, evaluating great business opportunities, being able to build an instinct for what makes a great founder, build an instinct for uh, what opportunities were at the right stage for the right time in order to scale uh, into a venture type of opportunity. And I got the opportunity to work with a lot of, a lot of founders as they were growing their own businesses. And so that part of my career uh, was a lot of fun as well. A, a lot of early learning uh, in terms of what made good, good founders and good companies. Uh, and we had some, we were fortunate to have uh, some good successes coming out of that fund. And uh, I think it allowed me to kind of build my career in a bit of a different sense and 
you know, I think leverage all of the experiences that I had had as an entrepreneur and, and to authentically work with entrepreneurs and you know, having the credibility to say, I've been in your shoes. I've been a founder. I know what it's like. I know what the highs and lows are like. I know what the journey's like. And, and, uh, you know, we're here to do this together and be helpful where we can. You know, I think it gave me a bit of a different lens around how to be a bit of a different investor and, and, and uh, build those kinds of relationships. And so, you know, that was, uh, you know, that was a fun period to go through as well. I'm curious about kind of like the periods of time there. So coming out of university, mid nineties, your founder in the Bay area during that, that infamous tech bubble. And then you're an investor in kind of like, I wouldn't call it early Canadian tech, but, you know, kind of that early 2000s. How have those periods kind of shaped you as a founder, an investor, um, kind of seeing those incredible highs and maybe something that we kind of recently have just been going through? And then maybe kind of those early days in Canadian tech versus the explosion that we see today. Yeah, well, certainly my entrepreneurial experiences in those days were filled with lots of highs and lows because of what was happening in the market and, and you know, the market accelerating and then the bubble bursting and, and the market, de, you know, decelerating and, uh, you know, having to learn to lead both in, an, in a market that's going up and a market that's going down. And so it taught me a, a lot about uh, being an entrepreneur, probably in an accelerated fashion because that time was just so intense. Um, and so I kind of feel like that those four or five years of my life felt like 10 years maybe, uh, because of the intensity of the experience. So, you know, I think that was certainly uh, a huge learning experience for me. Um, you know, coming into the Canadian tech sector, then, you know, I thought, I think what I realized was that as an ecosystem, we were still very early, you know, we were probably 10, 15 years behind the Bay area in terms of the sheer size of the industry the networks that were there, the amount of capital that was there, the amount of mentorship uh, that was there. But we had all the raw ingredients to kind of help develop and, and, and support really, really strong entrepreneurs. Uh, we just needed to kind of activate some early capital, really encourage entrepreneurs to be super ambitious. Um, and what I didn't realize, you know, I, I think when I joined BrightSpark in the early days is that you know, we were probably doing as much ecosystem building as we were actually investing in companies because we really wanted to see, you know, the ecosystem here develop and mature and be long lasting. Uh, because I think we all felt that this industry was hugely important to Canada as we start to think of moving from older traditional industries like oil and gas and banking and financial services to, you know, some newer industries that have massive opportunities that, that we needed to be in this for the long haul and, and not just invest in great companies, but give back our time and energy and our experience in helping to build an ecosystem. And so I think that realization and that patience that what we were trying to do was something for the long, long term, um, I think was very helpful for me to understand. And on that thread of ecosystem, you ultimately move over to Mars. What's the timeline there? Do you go right from BrightSpark to Mars? So I was at BrightSpark for about five, six years. I then jumped in to run a few of our portfolio companies uh, and I ended up joining Mars in about 2012. Um, and, and that was sort of a, a career choice for me that was sort of not on the roadmap for me. I, you know, I always thought I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to be an investor. 
uh, and that's where I'm going to focus. And and so, you know, when an opportunity came to join a not-for-profit with a very, very ambitious plan to really build Canada's tech ecosystem at scale, uh, I had to think about it for a while, but I, you know, I really think that it was, you know, it was going, it was going to be, I thought it was going to be a really, really impactful opportunity. You know, the, the organization then was led by a really, really, you know, visionary uh, founding CEO in Ilsa Turnick and, and, uh, uh, you know, they had this bold ambition to build one of the world's largest innovation centers right in downtown Toronto to activate, you know, the science and innovation ecosystem to start to cultivate the startup world, to drive innovation into the corporate sector, to lead uh, policy development in partnering with governments at all levels, and to make this an industry that really had staying power. I think it took all of my early experiences in ecosystem building and put it on steroids as I kind of jumped into that opportunity and, and to help the team kind of execute on that vision. Um, and looking back now, I, you know, it's, it's another one of those things that was really transformative for me in really trying to, uh, you know, think bigger picture about what is the tech sector? What is the sector around science, broadly speaking? You know, what, what does it mean to the country? How do we develop uh, the right talent? How do we activate the right capital? How do we find the right customer opportunities to cultivate a startup ecosystem? that has scale and that has staying power uh, and that can put us on a map in, in a really, really big way. And so I, I learned a lot uh, from that experience, you know, working with uh, stakeholders like government and, and corporates and the startup sector. Uh, our team worked with just over 1,200 startups in the, in the region, uh, helping them kind of grow and scale. Uh, we did a lot of work around policy work, uh, economic development work, immigration work, really to kind of grow the sector and and you know I think we were successful in contributing to help you know Toronto become one of the top global tech startup ecosystems in the world, but also connecting Toronto to other cities across Canada so that we could share our learnings, share our networks, and hopefully grow the sector across the country. Uh, and so that was sort of six seven years of my life that was uh, an unplanned adventure, but but was really really fun and really rewarding. What are a few things that you think made Mars so impactful and successful? I feel like the community building piece can be ambiguous sometimes, right? There's a lot of moving parts, a lot of different partnerships. Um, was it just kind of a narrow focus at the beginning? Um, I guess what were some things that made Mars super successful and is, is still around today? Yeah. So first of all, I think what we tried to do was become and build programs uh, that were really focused on us being a specialist rather than a generalist in, in science and technology. So very quickly, what I learned is, you know, I knew the tech world inside and out, building software and hardware companies, but there was this whole world of life sciences and healthcare where we had some really amazing entrepreneurs. Uh, we had this amazing world of clean tech developing solutions to really address climate change and sustainability. And so I think recognizing that all of these categories were opportunities to develop entrepreneurship, to grow startups, uh, and, and to really help grow and scale the work that was broadly happening in the innovation sector. They all needed different things. So the way that you grow a startup in the tech sector might be a bit different than the way you build a life sciences company or the way you build a healthcare company or the way you build a, an energy company in clean tech. And so we developed very custom programs for each of the sectors. 
uh, to really uh, help the entrepreneurs through that company building journey, uh, taking into account the context of their industry and what that experience would look like. We then, you know, built a very structured program for the entrepreneurs to kind of help them go through, you know, problem solution fit, product market fit, and then really getting them to think about scale. Uh, we activated networks to help the companies uh, get access to customers, capital, and talent, which we felt were the three most important inflection points that a, a company needed to kind of grow through in order to kind of get to that next stage. Um, and then what we wanted to do was to build the Mars brand so that we could activate partners from across the country and across the world uh, to open up opportunities for our companies. So I would say looking back, I think we took a very strategic, pragmatic uh, approach to kind of constructing the ecosystem, executing on the strategy. Um, we had an incredibly passionate team that was very motivated to, to help the ecosystem grow. And, and, uh, and then we learned a lot in terms of, you know, what worked and what didn't work and how ready the ecosystem was for, for certain things. You know, an ecosystem is never static. It continues to grow develop, mature, um, and then reinforce itself ultimately. And you start to create a bit of a, uh, a flywheel effect. So it's not something you just do and then hope it just takes off. It kind of needs a lot of nurturing and uh, sort of the long-term view in order to make sure that you kind of get it to a level of scale. So those were all some of the things that we, that we learned. And, and certainly I think we succeeded uh, collectively in, in making Mars an innovation brand that the world recognized, that uh, the country recognized, that was homegrown and reflected uh, the sectors that we were passionate about, the entrepreneurs that we were passionate about. And I think building a, a, a positioning that, you know, what an incredible opportunity we have to use science and technology to solve some of the world's toughest problems. Um, and so we always used to say, we want to build companies that scale and that can have impact at scale. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs resonated with that. A lot of talent resonated with that. And today when, you know, where we see the challenges that we're having in, in different industries and sectors, it's certainly even more meaningful today, uh, as we think about how we're going to problem solve, uh, to kind of get through some of the challenges that exist today. So ultimately, um, you make a move on from Mars. Do you do you automatically jump over to Radical? Did, had you heard about Radical Ventures before? Did you know some of the partners there? Um, would love to learn a bit more about that kind of transition from kind of that more community builder into more of a an investor again. Yeah. So you know, while I was at Mars, one of the sectors that we were actively involved in was helping to stand up the AI ecosystem. You know, there was a lot of great things happening at the University of Toronto. Um, some really great, uh, you know, experts uh, that came together uh, to kind of put together the Vector Institute for Artificial Intelligence, which we brought over to Mars and was housed at Mars. Uh, we attracted you know, probably uh, 10, 15, 20 AI startups into our center. Uh, we had a number of corporates set up their AI labs. So I, you know, I was really, in, during my time at Mars, seeing this AI ecosystem starting to emerge. Uh, and I had a sense that there, you know, what we were going to see 
was a brand new industry here develop and sort of a next generation of entrepreneurs uh, come out of this ecosystem that we were hoping to build. Um, and it was through that work that I got introduced to Jordan Jacobs and Tommy Putin. They were the founders of a company called Layer 6, an AI company that we uh, that was acquired by TD Bank. Uh, they were housed at Mars, so they were part of the ecosystem that, that we were building. And uh, they were also co-founders of the Vector Institute. So they too were very much a part of uh, developing the AI ecosystem. And, and so I got to know them both really well and, and they shared with me their plans around uh, wanting to start a fund and really focus as a specialist fund on supporting entrepreneurs that they believed would, would, would come out of this, this new uh, ecosystem that was developing. And I just felt I had seen this movie before you know, uh, of, of a new technology emerging, an ecosystem emerging, an opportunity to develop companies and entrepreneurs, and then an opportunity to activate talent. And so, you know, I, I uh, you know, jumped at the opportunity to join them right at inception uh, to really start the journey uh, for, for Radical. And, and, uh, and that was back in May of 2019. So I think we all cared passionately about you know, this opportunity, the AI opportunity, you know, we felt like, um, you know, Radical was built really around three pillars. The first is that AI was going to be a transformative technology that would really, you know, revolutionize the way that companies run, the way that industries run, and really challenge society in some important and meaningful ways. And so as a category, this was going to be an area of innovation that was going to be around for the next 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, and there was going to be a lot of entrepreneurship coming out of the sector. Um, secondly, is through all of our ecosystem work collectively, you know, we knew a lot of the, the, the research and technology luminaries that were essentially inventing the field. So we had a bit of an unfair advantage in really understanding which technologies were actually groundbreaking, what was the infrastructure that was going to be needed to kind of stand up this industry um, and really build relationship with these luminaries to find the exciting researchers and entrepreneurs that were developing these next companies. And so that luminary network was an important part of, you know, radical strategy. And then finally, with all of us being ecosystem builders, we really felt that Canada had a unique opportunity uh, to make this a, a massive industry here in our own country. Uh, given the history and the connection that we had to the sector, the incredible talent that we were developing, um, you know, the fact that we had helped create the Pan-Canadian AI strategy uh, and setting up the Vector Institute, Mila in Montreal and Amy in Edmonton, um, that, you know, we really wanted to be active in helping to grow and develop this ecosystem for Canada uh, and to really continue to help Canada punch above its weight in this field. And so I think all of us collectively uh, had great conviction around all of those those three pillars, and and certainly it made sense to activate it through uh, the Radical Fund. And we had a great chat last week about kind of the history of AI in Canada, and I'd say, you know, not even the average Canadian, maybe people even in tech don't realize the amount of, like you mentioned, luminaries and the history that we have and, you know, the talent that's here. Do you mind kind of giving, you know, maybe we don't have to do a, a huge history yeah. lesson, but, you know, some of the background there and like, you know, what Vector is all about, what's that strategy, 
you know, like where's this talent coming from specific universities? Why has that been in Canada? Yeah. I know we talked a bit about it last week, but we'd love to cover that. Yeah. So let's step back for a second. I mean, I think it's always been the dream of researchers and scientists to kind of envision a world uh, you know, driven by artificial intelligence. It's a, it's, a, it's a journey that started probably in the early 1960s where researchers felt that, you know, what if computers could be smart and if we could actually use that, that their intelligence to actually drive insights and drive action and drive decisions. But Really, that first generation of AI research and, and, and technology was not overly successful at scaling. I would say that it was really driven by expert systems and really programming a computer to think by essentially creating rules, uh, if-then statements, essentially, uh, to, to really help a, 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 a computer really understand a situation and how to make decisions. And that's really not real intelligence. It's essentially just you know, implementing rules in an expert system into a, into a computer. So I'd say that the AI industry, I think, really struggled uh, bringing that vision to life. Um, up until 2012, in 2012, there was a real groundbreaking moment for the AI sector where uh, a professor by the name of, of Jeff Hinton, uh, who had been toiling away at AI for, for years at the University of Toronto, um, he had developed a, a, a new approach to AI called deep learning. And really what it was focused on was not programming rules into a computer, but really teaching a computer to learn, uh, being able to absorb data, do pattern recognition, understand context, and then use that to drive insights and to drive action. Um, and in 2012, uh, Jeff and his students took this concept of deep learning applied it to a, 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 a computer vision competition called ImageNet and blew all the other competitors out of the water in terms of the accuracy uh, of their, of their uh, uh, system and algorithms relative to the others. And I think in 2012, the world woke up and realized that there was a next generation now of AI that was possible utilizing, you know, the approaches that were pioneered by Jeff in the field of, of, of deep learning. And so what a lot of people don't realize is that this entire field really was invented in Canada, uh, was funded by CIFAR, the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. Uh, and Jeff and his students were really at the, you know, the, at the pioneering edge of bringing all of this to life. And, and, and so as their work grew, uh, Jeff's students ended up leading it at AI at organizations like Google, Facebook, Apple, um, uh, OpenAI, Tesla. Uh, and so we had all of these great people that had connections to Canada, that had connections back to Toronto, that were really pioneering the field and taking the concepts of deep learning and really advancing the art of what was possible. Um, and so really what that did was it opened up the field again. I think that it really gave people an insight of how to apply this technology. You know, these breakthroughs that Jeff had been working on wouldn't have been possible if not for the incredible amount of data that we were now collecting through the world that we were digitally transforming and using that data to be able to train systems. And so that was quite fortuitous is that we were a world filled with with data that, that could be purposed for this type of, of training. Uh, and we also had seen the cost of compute go down. 
Uh, so this type of training takes a lot of compute resources and, and, you know, decades ago, it would have been cost prohibitive to be able to kind of use and get access to those resources. But as those costs came down, it also reinforced the approach of deep learning. And I think that that unlocked the sector and unlocked companies like Google and Facebook and Apple and Tesla, all looking at this field and starting to invest in it. Um, and we kind of went through sort of another uh, period of time where the field became very hot and all of these incredible researchers became rock stars. Uh, and people started to believe again that, that we really could uh, activate and, and bring, you know, the concept of building computers that were, that could learn, uh, that could intelligently drive insights, that could intelligently drive decision-making. Um, and you know, that future was perhaps closer than we had thought. I'd say, you know, one of the reasons why the Vector Institute was created was really around the opportunity to bring back and connect all of these people around the world that had connections to the University of Toronto and to the early AI ecosystem and really leverage their insights and their networks uh, to really make Toronto and the Vector Institute one of those hubs where we could continue to develop talent in the field uh, and continue to drive research in the field so that Canada could stay ahead of the innovation opportunities that were bubbling up. And so, um, you know, the goal of Vector, the Vector Institute was really to become the largest grad school for machine learning scientists in the world, uh, to connect this incredible research to the corporate ecosystem, to drive the adoption of AI, and also to cultivate an ecosystem of entrepreneurs that would spin out the next great companies. And, and through that work, we also found incredible people like Joshua Bengio, who did the same thing in Montreal with Mila and Rich Sutton, who did the same thing in the field of reinforcement learning in Edmonton at, at Amy, the Alberta Machine Intelligence Institute. And so, you know, I think we, through that, all of that work, I think we've tried to be very strategic in, uh, again, building an ecosystem driven by talent, really driven by, you know, Canada's role in being able to contribute and commercialize opportunities that we saw in this new field and be able to do it at scale. And so that was sort of the, the early vision that we had. With your experience with commercializing, you know, research that's happening at a university or an institute into a full-fledged product that consumers or businesses can use, how is that chasm different than, you know, maybe someone who's noodling on like a marketplace startup and they're building it and they're doing this and that, like, what are some of the nuances there as an investor and someone who's been in the community and how do we make that more successful? Yeah. So I'd say, you know, at Radical, we sort of look at the AI opportunity in two different buckets. The first bucket is what are the innovations that are going to be developed leveraging hardware, software, data, and compute to build the infrastructure that's going to bring alive sort of the foundational elements of, uh, of AI that are going to be needed to kind of power this, this new world that we envision. And so the one bucket of, of innovations that we are looking for are really these core foundational technical innovations that are going to power the sector uh, from, from, you know, at a platform and infrastructure level. And so that's sort of one bucket that we invest in. Um, that requires a lot of depth around technology, around research, around intellectual property, around really uh, applying the science to 
build the infrastructure that's going to be needed in order to really scale this industry. And so there, I think being very connected to the research space is, is really important because it helps us understand uh, you know, what the researchers are working on, what problems we need to solve, how are we going to solve those technically and algorithmically. Um, and so I think connection to the research community there is very important. The other bucket of opportunities that we see is what we call applied AI. So how are we then going to use all of this capability to create new solutions in healthcare and financial services and e-commerce and education uh, in, in climate tech? Um, and really there, what we're trying to solve for are industry problems, uh, which perhaps can utilize these AI technologies in new and unique ways to create net new businesses uh, in a particular industry. Um, and so there, I think you need very much a deeper understanding of an industry sector, a deeper understanding of what's the business problem and the value proposition that we're looking to solve. All of those things that entrepreneurs ultimately look at. Uh, and also looking for teams that are very, very savvy in the art of the possible of what's bubbling up in the world of AI. Um, and so, you know, I think for us, uh, you know, part of the entrepreneurs that we meet are researchers who are very technical and who have the ambition and the aptitude to become entrepreneurs and are wanting to make that jump. And, and we work very closely to help develop them to be ready for, for that experience. But then we also work with, you know, your traditional technology entrepreneurs who are very savvy about where this AI world is going and wanting to solve different kinds of problems in different ways. And, and we also fund those kinds of companies as well. And, and so, you know, I think as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a fund, the AI world is a little bit different than your traditional software investor or hardware investor, because we've got to play on both sides. Uh, 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 you know, understanding the technical depth and breakthroughs and the art of the possible, but also being, you know, uh, pretty up to speed on where the industries are going and, and what kinds of innovations are going to be relevant and get to scale uh, uh, in terms of what we're seeing out there. From an AI component in like an application um, selling into a certain industry or vertical, I've been reading Abby Goldfarb's book, his new book there on you know, do do companies have the systems in place to implement AI like that that can actually help them grow and scale? So do you find that there's certain industries and then the people in those industries are more open to AI or they're ready for it? Or is it just, you know, hey, this is a great business. They're growing like gangbusters, like we should back this. Or do you find certain places are better suited for AI at this time? Yeah, so I'd say that Certainly the early adopters or the group, the industries that are looking at AI a lot right now are sectors that have access to a lot of data, have some meaningful business problems that they think that they, they want to solve and see the potential for machine learning to be an important catalyst uh, to try and solve some of those problems. And so what does that mean? As you enter a sector, whether it's healthcare or financial services, insurance, uh, the first thing you got to figure out is, you know, can you get access to the data? Uh, the second thing is then, can you train the models to actually drive the kinds of insights and predictions that are relevant for the business? Is that going to drive an ROI that's meaningful for the company? Then can we, can we get comfortable with all of the risks that perhaps an organization needs to take on as they start working with learning systems? And then we need to be able to show it and do it at scale. 
And so I think that regardless of whatever industry you're in, um, you kind of have to go through that journey of understanding what are you ready for? What can you unlock? And how do you prepare your organization uh, for being able to do this at scale? And I would say that um, it's not that some industries are better prepared than other industries. I would just say that there are some companies within industries that I think are better prepared and have more conviction uh, than others in terms of making the leap and taking the and making the investments uh, and and going on this journey. And so, what you find in the world of AI is that a lot of these corporates across a number of industries are doing lots of pilots, uh, and those pilots are actually generating quite significant ROI. But then the challenging part becomes how do we start to do this at scale and unlock the things that are important in order to help an enterprise do it at scale. Now, some companies are going to be able to do that really, really well, and they're going to be able to transform themselves uh, into becoming what we call an intelligent enterprise, leveraging these technologies. Others are going to get stuck. And when they get stuck, it's going to create an opportunity for challengers to come in that are probably bringing a modern data stack, a modern compute stack, uh, a modern approach to solving a problem and, and becoming a f more formidable competitor in, in a given industry. And so it's going to be really fascinating to watch over the next 10, 15, 20 years, how these industries get shaken up by you know, those companies that can really adapt and adapt quickly. Um, and for those that quickly get taken over by challengers who are just more nimble and, and better prepared to kind of accelerate this kind of innovation. Uh, but there's no doubt that the, the biggest challenge we have right now in industry is every sector has spent the last 10, 15 years going through digital transformation, investing in software and compute in order to fully digitize their businesses. Um, and what they have been building is what we would call systems of record. These computers are really tracking everything that's going on in a business. Uh, and essentially creating a bit of an audit trail of, of what's happening and, 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 uh, and consolidating that so that people can use that data to make decisions. What we now need to do is actually reinvent those systems and actually turn them into from systems of record into systems of intelligence. And what that means is we actually have to break down the data silos. We actually have to start to correlate data uh, more effectively across an organization uh, to train and drive insights. And so it's actually a fundamental shift in how we've architected enterprise technologies to date. And so it's, it's, it's not a small feat to go to a company and say, okay, you now have to take everything you've done and, 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 and move it in a different direction to take advantage of AI. And that is going to be an industry stumbling block that I think is really, really real. Um, and a lot of companies are, are going to have to think about really carefully as they get prepared uh, to drive to, you know, building systems of intelligence. I'd be curious your, your thoughts too. I, you know, you started Radical back in 2019. And just, I feel like over the last six months, ChatGPT, OpenAI, AI is the new kind of Web3. It's just taken over the tech space, the tech community. How how do you cut through that noise? How do you cut through people just saying, yeah, we're an AI company or we sprinkle AI on our company? How do you cut through that noise and fundamentally find like a, you know, a company that's like looking to make a radical change in the space? 
Yeah, well, certainly I think, you know, being very involved in the industry from the early days, I think we've had our own investment thesis and hypothesis of what technologies were going to be developed and what infrastructure was going to be needed to really stand up this sector. Uh, you know, we saw generative AI, which is a field that's getting a lot of attention right now. It's actually, you know, teaching com uh, computers once they've, they've, they've learned a particular domain to start to become creative in the output that they're generating. So we're seeing a lot of really interesting innovation happening uh, in chat with uh, really around language and how com computers are able to now synthesize and communicate with humans. Uh, we're seeing a lot of innovation happening in text to image where you've got systems like Dolly that are sort of, you ask a computer to think about an image or construct an image and they're able to output, you know, a, 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 an image to kind of that reflects, you know, what you're hoping for. We're seeing a lot in, in text to uh, 3D and, and text to video eventually that'll be emerging. So all of these, I think, are are showcasing all of the creative possibilities that a computer can have uh, when it, it's intelligent and it, or it has built up some intelligence, uh, which is exciting. Um, and, you know, we've been investing in all of these technologies, you know, since the very early days. Uh, and I think what we like to think is happening right now is that, you know, what you're seeing now is people all of a sudden paying attention to, wow, a computer can really do this. It's really party tricks, essentially, uh, where people are being amazed at how far computers have come and what the art of the possible is, which is great. But it's one thing to kind of showcase a party trick, uh, but it's another thing to build a business around it and to be able to sell that product to a market that wants to pay for it uh, and for us to be able to build and scale businesses. And so I think we, we spend a lot of time trying not to get too distracted by all of the hype surrounding the art of the possible, but weeding through that to figure out, you know, what are the real companies here that have substance, that have a really strong product vision, that are solving a meaningful problem that we can solve at scale, that we can turn that into a business opportunity that can scale, uh, and that we can do that in a time frame uh, that it will be relevant and important for an industry to, to do that. And so, I think as investors, we, we have to, you know, weed through the noise that's, that's, that's happening out there, the hype, and really be able to drill down to what are the companies and the entrepreneurs that are going to build substantial companies leveraging all of these technologies. How we do that? Well, first of all, we've invested in, in many of the leaders in the field that are building the infrastructure. Um, so just like, uh, you know, OpenAI has... Uh, uh, GPT-3 and 3.5, which is sort of their large language models. We invested very early on in a company called Cohere, which is one of the largest challengers. They have built their own large language models. And, and so we're really excited that we've made some really great bets in companies that are going to be building out that infrastructure stack. It really helps us understand, you know, where these technologies are going and, and what the potential is and how we want to apply it. Um, and then we're looking for entrepreneurs that are building businesses on top of all of this infrastructure and leveraging APIs and solving meaningful problems. And we you know we get a lot of learning by understanding what's happening in industries, what problems are relevant. We we spend a lot of time looking at you know the regulatory environment and understanding how that could be an accelerant or you know a, a deterrent for getting some of these things out to scale. 
Um, and we're watching entrepreneurs now starting to get real revenue momentum with the companies that they're generating. And so I think for us, you know, it's really important to separate uh, investors that are in this sector for the long haul, uh, that have the technical expertise, the networks to be able to identify, you know, opportunities that are going to scale uh, versus more generalist investors, perhaps what we call tourist investors that are going to jump in because it's hot and uh, timely right now. But when the next flavor of the month comes up, they're going to move on to something else. Uh, I think they're going to get attracted to kind of very different kinds of opportunities than the things that we're attracted to right now. You mentioned there a little bit about infrastructure and then companies being able to plug into the API and cohere. Can you just at least at a high level explain like what an infrastructure, you know, like when you're looking at OpenAI or Cohere, like how did those businesses build their business versus mm -hmm. someone that could like plug in and like the, the just the nuances and the differences between those two? Yeah. So a lot of the innovation that we're seeing right now in generative AI, for example, is coming from um, uh, an area uh, where we're having to build what we're calling large language models. We're, we're teaching computers to ingest a lot of data. We're training them to get smart around a particular domain and then uh, allowing them to interact with humans in new and unique ways. And that takes an incredible amount of data to build those models. It takes an incredible amount of compute power to train those models. And it takes a massive amount of investment to be able to continue to improve on those models so that computers can interact in, in a very relevant and you know, intelligent way. So it's our belief that not every company is going to be able to have the data and the compute to be able to build uh, and invest in large language models, that they're going to essentially uh, leverage the infrastructure that's being built out there and then build their own innovation on top of those large language models through an API type of environment. And so, you know, what OpenAI and, and, and Microsoft and Google and, and uh, Cohere and others are doing, I think are building these in, you know, data uh, infrastructure elements that ultimately industry is going to be able to leverage to kind of unlock the applications that they want to build. And so, you know, there's going to be different investments that are going to be required for, uh, you know, the infrastructure kinds of companies versus those that are more domain specific. And, uh, you know, you might find specialized models or specialized machine learning that sits on top of these generalized models. Um, and maybe that's the IP that some of these new startups are going to own as they start to develop very specific solutions. Um, but not everyone's going to have you know, all of the resources to do all of this on their own. So it really is going to become to some degree a utility that you access uh, and that you kind of plug into to be able to customize your own solution for the problem that you're looking to solve. Spe specifically with Radical, I know you're looking to raise a new fund. Um, how does investing in AI, is it different than kind of maybe more generalist VC um, with that fund, are you like, how early are you investing? Are you investing at kind of like an idea stage? Like people are looking to commercialize something. I'd love to know if there are certain nuances to investing in AI, what makes it different and what stages that you invest at? Yeah, I think we definitely feel that building an AI first company has some nuances that are different than building your traditional, you know, software or technology company. Um, you know, the first is purely from a, from a technology standpoint, you know, 
we really need to understand, you know, how are, how is the startup leveraging data, leveraging machine learning, uh, uh, training its systems, accessing the data that it needs, accessing the compute that it needs in order to be able to create the product that it ultimately wants to, to, to solve. And so we have to ask questions like where, you know, how are they going to access the data? How are they going to access compute? How do they get their algorithms to a point where they can drive a certain level of ROI? So there are very different kinds of, I think, technical questions that we would be looking for entrepreneurs to answer versus your traditional SaaS company in order to really understand whether that innovation that they're focused on is unique, can scale, uh, and can be differentiated relative to what's out there. Uh, and then ultimately also trying to understand the capital it's going to take to kind of get it to scale. And so that's sort of, I'd say, one element of uh, diligence that I think is a little different than your traditional software company. And we really rev leverage our experts um, uh, in the fund, all of our, our, our partners. We leverage the luminary network that we've built in order to give us feedback and advice and guidance on, on, on what's happening in these fields. And I'd say, you know, it's very rare for your generalist venture fund to have the technical depth to really be able to dig in and ask some of these questions and understand the challenges of building some of these kinds of businesses. And I think that's something that we do well, and it's quite unique to us. So that's sort of the first piece that's a little bit different. We then need to understand, okay, how do you translate that into a product that customers want and build the right kind of go-to-market motion to connect you to customers and to start to scale? And we have to start to ask ourselves how prepared are these industries for this type of adoption? Talked a little bit about the data challenges, the technical challenges, uh, the internal politics, the comfort with risk as a lot of these companies are ad adopting these technologies, the, the perspective of the regulatory system and, and how, does the, how do regulators look at you know, machine learning applied you know, in certain ways to certain sectors. And so I think that also is a very different knowledge set and company building exercise that, again, is a little bit different than your traditional SaaS uh, type of company. Um, and then third is, you know, really helping these companies then continue to build their product roadmap, incorporate all of the breakthrough research, be able to kind of grow, uh, you know, their businesses at scale globally. Um, and, and again, we think that there are going to be certain types of customers in certain industries and in certain regions that are going to be better connected at others and better prepared to be able to scale. And we, we think we can guide companies to those opportunities in, in a pretty important way. So I'm biased, but I believe that we're building a little bit of a different type of venture fund than your traditional investment firm uh, that is very, very specialized in, in not only understanding the technology, but building product and getting product out to market at scale uh, and being able to navigate all of the challenges in this field. And I'll also add that we, we not only have we built an incredible investment team to kind of work and source all of these entrepreneurs and find the best opportunities, but we've also built something called the Velocity Team, which is a team that I lead here at, at, at Radical, um, where we've tried to take all of these learnings about building an AI-first company, uh, and we actually uh, have a team that's dedicated, once we close a, a deal with a company, to actually work with the entrepreneurs to really help them navigate all of these inflection points uh, and be helpful in helping them, uh, you know, meet their, their growth objectives or growth milestones. So our, our job is not simply just to write a check, but it's to write a check 
and then we'll be able to roll up our sleeves and be helpful to the entrepreneurs in navigating this growth without getting in their way. And so that I think has been a really, really important program for us to be, uh, develop all of the companies in the portfolio, utilize it. Entrepreneurs are now talking to other entrepreneurs about the kind of work that we do through that, that team and that program. And so, you know, I think we, we really want to be active business builders uh, with our entrepreneurs uh, and, and certainly be able to be helpful in navigating some of the challenges that we know are going to emerge in this world. I'd love to chat a bit about maybe what, where you think this space will go over the next five to 10 years. Now, I'm not asking you to predict the future by any means, but just being plugged into this space, you know, where do you see it going in the next five to 10 years, whether that's, you know, the space more broadly or, you know, Toronto, maybe yeah. even a Canadian focus? How do you see things progressing? Well, I think the field is really going to continue to accelerate in a pretty Im impressive clip. Um, you know, I'd say you look at all the excitement that people have about, you know, what they're seeing as the potential of things that AI can do today. We're only in the first inning. Um, and, you know, the more that we uh, teach computers to learn in different ways, the more that we you know, activate different kinds of data sets and, and think about products and utilizing this technology to solve important problems. Um, you know, I really do think that over time, every company is going to utilize AI in some way, shape or form. Um, and, you know, essentially what's happening today is, you know, AI is going to reinvent software. Software is generally, it's great and it's really helped drive transformation in companies, but software alone is typically very static. You know, what we actually are now creating is software that becomes intelligent, uh, that learns. Uh, that is able then to use its insights to be able to drive uh, decision-making, uh, to work collaboratively with a human expert in a certain field uh, to make them better at their job. Um, and so, you know, I really do feel that over the next 10, 15 years, we really are going to see what the art of the possible is as, as AI you know, becomes more and more prevalent and better at some of these tasks that we are asking it to learn about. Um, and I think that we're going to start to see the reinvention of the software world as we think, as we start to see software moving from being done to be becoming smart, becoming intelligent. And that's exciting. I think that's sort of going to be a 20, 30, 40 year, you know, uh, journey, uh, where we're going to see a whole other level of innovation happen, uh, which is quite exciting. And we're going to see, you know, brand new companies emerge that are going to become juggernauts in this space. We're going to see industries emerge. We're going to see different kinds of solutions happen. We're going to be able to utilize this technology to address problems like climate change, uh, you know, like healthcare and, and building and developing therapies and medicines. Um, so I think that the art of the possible is very exciting. You know, that is not going to be just a straight line. You know, we're going to have to ask tough questions about how we're going to use this technology in an ethical way in a responsible way, in a meaningful way. Um, but but I, I think we got to be ready and prepared to kind of roll up our sleeves and, and, and be ready for what's about to occur because it's going to happen really, really quickly. Um, and it's going to ask, you know, force us to ask a lot of questions. Now in that journey, you know, I, I, I'm, I am very passionate and I know my partners at Radical are very passionate about the opportunity that Canada has. You know, we, in many instances, you know, we're part of pioneering this, this field and advancing this field. And, 
what an incredible opportunity we have to create the talent and drive the research and drive the commercialization to contribute to a lot of this innovation activity that we're going to see. And, and, and if, if we believe it's going to create a lot of, you know, economic wealth, why not leverage that to help rebuild the economy of Canada uh, to be a growth driver? And so I think we, you know, we really do believe that, you know, this, the pan-Canadian AI strategy and the investments that we've made so far are great, but we can't stop. We got to keep doubling down and investing in talent uh, and attracting the best people from around the world to come here and move the industry forward and teach our, our young people to come into the field and help them develop the ideas and opportunities. And so I think there is a, an opportunity for Canada here for us to seize, and, and it would be a shame if we, if we as a country couldn't, couldn't seize on this opportunity, given, you know, the, the, the way it's shaped out so far. And, and I think we, we want to try and be part of that, you know, that strategy if, it, if possible. I love that. And that sounds very exciting. That's going to, what's going to happen over the next few decades. I'd love to switch gears into the quick fire round. And the first question would be, what is your favorite book? And if you're not a book person, it might be a podcast, might be a movie. Favorite book that relates to entrepreneurship and, you know, I think reflects a lot of what I've learned is a book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. Um, ben is, uh, he was an entrepreneur with Mark Andreessen, uh, started a company called uh, LoudCloud and, and, and uh, certainly is one of the founders of Andreessen Horowitz today. But that book, I think, really talks about what the founder journey is like and what it's like from, for a founder to become a CEO uh, and learning to become a leader and the realities of that and the hard lessons you learn when you haven't been trained to be a CEO, but you, you know, one day have to become a CEO. And, you know, being a, you know, a, a CEO in good times is very different than being a CEO in war times and when things are bad. And so, you know, I really would encourage entrepreneurs who haven't read that book to, to read it. I think there's incredible insights and learnings there. And, and he certainly is an accomplished entrepreneur and investor. And, and I, I think that a lot of his insights are very, you know, universally relevant even today. Fantastic book. I love that one. Um, what are you most excited about for in 2023, whether that's personal and or professional? Yeah, I mean, professionally, I'm excited about, you know, what more everyone is going to learn about the power of AI. I, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, you know, how many stories are getting writ written about, you know, chat GPT or, or all of these new things that are bubbling up. It's just the beginning. Uh, and so I'm excited about the attention the field is getting and people's imaginations racing about what this means for industry and about, our, you know, our world. Uh, and that's exciting um, because I think we are firm believers that this is a, a transformational technology. And so I, I think it's just the beginning. Personally, I am taking my family this year for a summer trip to Japan. And uh, uh, I think that'll be a great uh, cultural experience for, for them. I've been before and it, uh, it is an amazing country with a really unique culture. And, and uh, uh, I'm excited for my, my kids to sort of experience that as you know, one of their first big international trips. I'm jealous. Japan's high up on my list. Uh, final question before I open the floor up to you. But how do you deal with hard times? You've, you've been a founder, you've been an investor, you've been a pioneer in a newer space. How do you deal with those difficult times? 
Yeah, I think what I've learned over time is it's, you know, you're, you're always going to have ups and downs. And I think it's really important to learn to be steady, not to overreact when times are good or when times are bad, but to really create a steadiness uh, that affects your decision making that I think people feel as they're around you looking for leadership. I think being measured and being steady is really, really important. And, and I think it certainly helped me. Um, the second thing is, you know, when you're on these journeys, you, you, you can only navigate it if you surround yourself with really smart people who share your same values, are excited about the same thing, and can be really great problem solvers with you and around you. Because in many instances, you're kind of inventing things that have never been done before. And so, you know, it's a lonely journey if you're doing it on your own, if, if you can have amazing people around you. Uh, certainly your chance of success is, is greater, but also I think your, uh, the, the, the opportunity to get fulfillment from the work that you do, uh, with great people around you also is much, much higher. And so, you know, I think that, uh, life's too short. I think my advice to people is, uh, pick something ambitious to do, do it with people that you enjoy working with that share, uh, your own values and have fun. Because uh, uh, if you're going to dig into something that you're going to do 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you better love it. So have fun doing it. Great advice. And yeah, we'd just love to open the floor up to you, to maybe where people can learn a bit more about Radical or get in touch with you or whatever you'd want to chat about. Yeah, for sure. If people are interested in learning more about Radical, please uh, visit our website, uh, radical.vc. Uh, you can certainly check us out on LinkedIn uh, and on Twitter as well. We do have uh, a weekly newsletter uh, where we sort of highlight uh, all of the advancements that are happening in the field and the news that we believe is re relevant uh, for the industry. So please subscribe to to the newsletter. You can do that off our website um, and uh, and uh, you know hopefully reach out if you're working on something amazing um, or want to learn more about the field. Please feel free to reach out to our team. Awesome. Well, appreciate the time, and it's been such an interesting conversation through your background, learning more about the AI space, and thanks again for coming on. Thanks, Evan. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.